Welcome to the History of Networking with the Network Collective. For this show, we have Aaliyah Atlas chatting with us about fast reroute. So pull up a chair, relax, bring out your favorite beverage, a small plate of cookies, and join us for the History of Networking. So, hi, Aaliyah. You are a routing area directorate. You have a very impressive resume and LinkedIn profile. And... Let's see. You've done all sorts of stuff in your, your life as a network engineer. Actually, you're a math PhD, right? Is that correct? Do you have a math PhD or, uh, close to it or something like that? Computer science. I did algorithms and real-time scheduling. Oh, okay. All right. Close enough to math. <laughs> well, be sure. There was probability involved. <laughs> Well, the probability is whether or not you would finish your PhD, right? <laughs> oh, no. I locked myself in the room. I was like, I have to get this done. I don't get to go home until I finish the chapter. It's the only yeah, way to get it done. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm doing a PhD right now, but it's in philosophy. But I still have that same problem. And I keep weighing the probabilities. Every time I finish another seminar and another 10 books, I think the probability is increasing that I'll actually finish this whole thing. <laughs> Well, that was the thing about the real-time scheduling, right? You have hard deadlines. If you don't, you don't make it, the world explodes. Those are always kind of interesting. And then you have soft deadlines where it just keeps getting worse the longer you wait, the further <laughs> past the deadline you are. And then you have firm deadlines where if you don't make it, that's okay. There's always another period. That's sort of like ISG telechats. You have lots of documents to review. And if you didn't make it, the work all goes away until the next time. <laughs> So, so now we're now we're immediately into near real time switching, real time switching, and, and processor based switching. See, that just yep. said perfectly. That's great. So, so let's start with um, let's start with fast reroute. So, what was the problem trying to be solved? I know that early on nobody really understood microloops and things like that. So, let's start from like all the way in the beginning, twenty years ago. Okay, maybe it wasn't twenty years ago. But I'm not going to claim it's twenty years ago, though it's getting ridiculously close to twenty years ago. It is. But we don't have to go there. So. I started, I mean, I'd done RSVPT faster out. I was working at Avicii, which is a router startup, as you know, with our goal was to build big routers, really big routers. And you know what's really sad is we no longer have dead router company day at ITF. <laughs> we should bring that back where everybody wears shirts from dead router companies. That was, that was hilarious. But anyway, I yeah. have a few. I do have a few still. <laughs> I think my I the definition of big routers, like. Uh, it had a toroidal uh, mesh for the backplane and you could just keep adding in uh, line cards to it and it computed routes in between. There was a whole fabric routing path inside, but. <laughs> The main so this point is very similar to the original um, um, CRS one, CSRN. Like Possibly, that. it was it was about in terms of scaling. Yes, so it scaled. I think larger than the CRS one, at least okay. allegedly. Um, but it was deployed over at AT and T, mm -hmm. and this was you know, and, and so that was great and was doing fine. But whenever a link went down, it would take a couple seconds for the convergence to happen. And you might think this is not a big deal. And this was well before we were doing live video like this or a lot of, you know, telephony, right? SIP didn't exist yet, or at least certainly wasn't widely deployed. So you wouldn't think this was a big deal, except it turns out that people were playing WoW 
And when you lost, when AT&T lost the link. <laughs> no, 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 not on the router, just across, across the network. End to end, what happens in the application stays in the application. But what they were having, <laughs> but what would happen is they would be playing World of Warcraft and something would happen to the network and their character would die. And I mean, while we all might grieve for people's characters dying in online games, that's not really a business problem. The problem is they'd call and complain. <laughs> Which is a business problem. <laughs> Which increases the OPEX, right. Which is a business problem. So they were like, we have to make sure that you stay under two seconds convergence. Well, you know, when you're dealing with a large distributed system, which is really what these routers are, you can compute all the routes up top, but then you have to distribute them down to the line cards and have them all installed. And so there's a lot of software that goes in there and making sure that the system paths, the paths are consistently the same regardless of events is tricky. So of course we could do that, but I looked at that and said, you're gonna have to tune that every single release. And it's going to suck because every time you tune it, every single release, you're going to miss one path is going to become critical and we're going to upset the customer. And of course, you never want to upset the customer. Operators need to be able to run their networks the way they want to. We just do the technology for them. So that was the problem. Now, there was an Atlanta IETF where uh, Senges and Alex Zinnan had presented sort of this rough idea about IP fast reroute, where they said, basically, well, you could just send it uh, sort of like ISIS downstream paths, right? We just send it to a router that has a closer distance to the destination than where you are, and maybe you have some, and then you could do this for fast reroute. EIGRP feasible successors. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I didn't say it was new, but this is what I saw. And so we need to, we need to cue the rule 11 quote now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes. So basically, I thought about this. I walked, worked with uh, Ravi Torvi, who was over at Avicii. He's over at Juniper with me now. And we figured out this idea of loop free alternates, i.e., instead of just sending to your neighbors who are closer to the destination. It turns out you could just ship them stuff. And if it's not cheaper for them to ship it back to you before it goes to the destination, then you're not going to have a loop. And that's great. So that seemed like a really nice idea. There's just one problem. It doesn't cover 100% of the source destination pairs, right? Because, because, because any ring with more than five loop or five hops, more than four hops, I'm sorry, any ring with more than four hops. Right. Exactly. And it also depends a little bit on the costing and stuff. And so if you look at real network architectures, what you find is it's consistently somewhere between two thirds to 80% coverage with loop free alternates. Now, some networks, I'm not talking about any ones except that they're extremely well designed and have parallel levels, they can manage to get it to 100%. And it's nice and simple. So you can totally do that, right? But not for this particular customer. So I looked at it and figured out uh, you know, I said, what can we do? And I thought about U-turn alternates. So this might make sense, for instance, if you think about Ethernet, right? You send a packet, you're not allowed to receive a packet back on the same interface that you sent it. In fact, you're so much not allowed that some of the chips don't even have memory to store it. If you wanted to send it back, it just drops it, which I thought was highly amusing. <laughs> but you, it's not legal to 
send the packet back or the frame out the same interface it came in. So you normally store it in memory for the interface that's going to go out and there is none for the same interface. Same. Kind of a problem for BFD as well, isn't it? But go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so, well, that's different because then that goes up to the control plane and back down again, right? right. It's not an immediate turnaround loop. You, you play with it, the packet that is. So anyway, so I thought about U-turn alternates and the idea with U-turn alternates is you're like, hey, I got this somewhere and I'd normally send it back out there and they sent it to me. So let's not do that. Let's do something else. And so then I, uh, so I wrote this up and figured out how to do it and analyzed it. And it turned out that it covered like 98%. And a few of the links we were talking about adding in in order to get to 100% were ones that were under consideration already. So that suddenly turns it from, well, this is interesting, but it doesn't solve the problem to, oh, this solves the problem. So let's see. Um, now along the way in yeah. there, there's not via. But that's kind of sideways. That's coming out of Mike Chan and his guys. Right. So what happened there was the first sole IETF, I'd written up a draft about U-turn alternates and loop-free alternates is all one thing. And I went off to IETF in Korea and I presented it. And there really wasn't a good place to talk about it, right? Because it wasn't ISIS and it wasn't OSPF. And, it and the routing working group didn't exist at that time, right? That's correct. This is one of the things that created the routing working group was so that we'd have a common place to talk about it. So I then met Stuart Bryant and Mike Shand, and they were like, well, that's very interesting. You were scarred for life. But I like to think of it as having gained new friends. It turns out <laughs> after you argue vociferously in person and online for an ex exceedingly long <laughs> period of time <laughs> that, you know, you become friends. I, I, can, I, can, I can say that because I was on the same team with them, by the way. So <laughs> that's okay. They won't beat me up. <laughs> Maybe. Well, <laughs> I envy your confidence, but um, <laughs> I don't think so either. So anyhow, so yeah, so we talked and, you know, we, and Alex in and got involved because he was the area director at the time and also interested in it. And we split up the loop free alternates because we all had agreement that that was a basic thing. Now, at that point in time, they had this whole idea or were developing this whole idea around uh, PQ space and. Um, no, no, not that. I don't, or at least I don't remember that. I remember they had this idea with like PQ space where you would figure out. Um, yes. All yeah. the routers, you, I mean, we use it for remote LFA, right? But they didn't yeah. have this, we didn't have an idea of exactly how you could do the directed forwarding to get the coverage that was necessary. What's and, PQ space? Oh, sorry. So PQ space, well, I mean, you know, we always like to use very short letters to describe things. So P space is the space that your computing router S can reach to get towards the destination. So all of the routers that it can reach without them looping back to it. And then Q space is a set of all the routers that can reach the destination without going back through the computing router S. And if they intersect, then poof, you have someone you can send to, which is the LFA. If they don't intersect, what do you do? Well, one of the things you can do is you can have create an LDP tunnel. So you basically have a hop to go to from to, to basically go from Q space to P space. And as long as your path from the computing router to that router in P space doesn't go through the potential failure point, you're all set. So, so essentially to put this in different terms that, that PQ space is also the point where split horizon takes place. 
Yes. So as long as you can tunnel past the split horizon point, then the router past the, the, the split horizon point is going to forward towards the destination instead of back towards you. Exactly. So the question was, how do you do that? Well, then you have to create an LDP tunnel. LDP tunnels are kind of annoying because you have to have a control plane session. And of course, if that changes, you know, there's only so much scaling you have for the number of LDP sessions you have and you have setup time. Right. So one of the things, this goes back to what we were talking about before with my real-time systems background. I'm like, you have resiliency and protection or you don't. There's no, oh, by the way, let's add an extra 30 milliseconds while we figure out the control plane issues. No, like either have protection or you don't have protection. You want to have really solid protection all the time. Right. Right. And we still haven't gotten into micro loops yet, right? I mean, we still, people still aren't thinking about micro loops at this time, from what I remember. We, yes, there was a starting to be. There was a design team. We were exploring the different advanced methods. And then Mike and Stort started talking about, well, what about micro loops? How do we do micro loops? And we didn't have any real solutions to micro loops at all. Alex and then went off on this. Actually, it was really cool. Uh, it's sort of... Um, it had to do with the router figuring out, looking at its neighbors, and based on the condition of what their, what its neighbors would be, he could figure out um, a set of conditions which would stop local microloops. And, but if, again, just like LFA, it only worked about 60-70% of the time. And then there was Pierre, and um, uh, shoot, how can I be zoning on his last name? I apologize. There was Pierre, and then there's Olivier Bonaventure, and Pierre was doing his PhD work. So he's doing his dissertation. And what he did was he did the work on um, what's called ordered FIP. So again, this is very complicated, though gives you 100% guarantee on how to, um, in what order different routers should recompute and install their FIBs in order to prevent a forwarding loops, the micro forwarding loops. But that right. assumes you sort of have to know what's the worst case uh, FIB right. install compute time in the network in order to do that. So what you're, what you're effectively doing is you're effectively telling the router that is furthest away from you at the destination, kind of, in the PQ space, like furthest away from you, to install first, and then backing up towards yourself so that you know that all the entries have, have changed so that when you change the guy next to you, it's going the right direction rather than looping back to you several hops away or something like that. Yeah, it's more like you compute a tree from yes. yourself. So from, from each end of the failure point, right? Because usually if you have a failure point, you've got two ends of it. At least if it's a link, if it's a node, then it all gets even more exciting. Um, <laughs> for definitions of exciting. Um, <laughs> anyway, so you get your, you could basically you compute your tree. And the point is that routers closer to the failure point need to have reconverged to the new thing before the routers that depend on them. And so you could, you could set it up and do it. The problem is that this takes a lot of time, depending on your topology. And we and, go back to wow and characters dying while you're trying to compute the ordered fib. Not a good thing. Well, no, it's actually not that. That's actually not the problem. That might look like the problem. But remember, <laughs> you've got your backup there. So if you've got your backup, it's okay uh, for your convergence true. to take longer. The problem is all of the fast route technology, right, is dependent upon the single failure assumption which is assuming that you've only lost one link or one node or one SRLG. Of course, SRLGs make it all NP hard, so that's fun, but it's not very practical for a lot of things. So if you take a really long time... SLRG. Oh, sorry, shared risk link group. 
That's right. Because so, nobody listening to this is going to know what an SRLG is. <laughs> oh, Yvonne's over there going, a what? Yeah, yeah, I really. All right, so, so let me let me pull it back. So the way I phrase, there's, there's two two of my favorite phrases. One of my favorite catchphrases is that bad things happen to good networks, and that's unfortunate, right? So we have to figure out how to protect against bad things happening. But, but a maxim that we can take to the bank. It's, Absolutely. It's, now she's sounding like the mafia, Yvonne. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about bad things happening here. Yes. And the other thing is backhoes happen. Yes, so exactly. let's talk about a backhoe and SRLGs because that's where we're going to. So when a backhoe comes along, it doesn't just take out one link between two routers. It doesn't just take out one you know, fiber cable between two routers. It takes out the whole conduit. And so if your backup path was going through that same conduit, it's not very useful. <laughs> <laughs> which, which actually has happened to me in real life. I've been sitting in a, comp- in a customer's network, mm-hmm. sitting there talking to them, and everybody around the, the – the, the, we were out at lunch, and mm-hmm. all the customer's pagers went off at the same time. And we thought this Never is good. not a good thing. <laughs> we went back to the office after abandoning lunch and we discovered that they had their primary circuit through one provider and their secondary circuit through another provider. Only thing nobody told them is both providers had subleased off the yes. same conduit. Yes, it happens a lot. <laughs> yes, I remember certain stories about conduits, and I think that, you know, they would tend to take rail paths, right? And at least in the U.S., obviously, elsewhere has its own amusements. But in the U.S., you would get all of the, traf- the uh, cable conduits going along the, where the railroads are because you had right of way and it was very easy to get it. And so you would end up with conduits on both sides. It turns out when the train derails, which hopefully doesn't happen very often, Bye bye conduits, right? So what? (laughs) I don't. I don't. You might remember the story better than I do, Russ. But I remember hearing stories, uh, probably from the early '90s, about this actually happening, and then people really worrying about getting the different paths. It took Tom out a couple of times. Actually, it really did. Yeah. No. No. This is like real problems. I mean, and of course, we all know. You know, there was the. Suez Canal, right, where the underwater cable went out and there went your internet connectivity, uh, you know, affected a lot of people and there weren't options. So anyway, so that's one of the pieces that happens. Um, And when we talk about shared risk link groups, it's not just the cable conduits. That's sort of the very obvious and easy thing, backhoes, et cetera. But it turns out that it's every single bloody factor along the way. So you start with the line cards. It turns out you have multiple interfaces usually on your line card. And if your primary and your backup are on the same line card, you're basically hosed, right? So this is what we, but that also turns out to be a simpler piece of the problem. So you call that local SRLGs because it's um, not arbitrary links between arbitrary pairs of routers across the whole topology, all of the links in an SRLG are connected at one end to a particular router, and that's easier to handle. Um, And then, of course, there's like, great, how do you get your packets? You've got your line card, then there's the cable run, then there's which exit out of the building do you do? I mean, this stuff can stack up a lot. And of course, then 
in a lot of these cases, you've got you've got transport gear, you have optics, and so they go to this. Do they go to the same optics piece or not? I mean, and this gets very complex. Um, as so one of the, just use not via and not worry about this, right? Well, not, <laughs> well, that's a lovely theory, but it turns out not via doesn't work for that. So, <laughs> let me tell you about. I mean, it doesn't solve the problem, right? Because you I'm still just have to trigger Aaliyah here. <laughs> So I have to tell you that Natvia is a beautiful idea. It was such a beautiful and elegant technical idea that I took my U-turn alternates where I was figuring out how to do cascaded U-turns in order to handle really long fiber loops. And I said, you know, this really works. Yes, there's more compute, but it's such a clean thing where you can just compute and do it. And the idea with Natvia is you just say, look, just compute me a path that doesn't go via this resource. There's a lot of computation, but you know, Mike Shand and Stuart Bryant convinced me, I'm not sure how, I think I was younger and gullible, more gullible than I should say. <laughs> <laughs> they managed to convince me that uh, with incremental SPFs and you know, they showed some an analysis of how long it would take to do these computations. And it actually wasn't that bad for most failures in most networks. Because of course, that's one of the challenges with the fast reroute technology is it's very architecture dependent. So it very much depends on what your network architecture is. You can do a network architecture where LFA gives you 100% coverage. You could do a network architecture where you get closer to 50% or worse, right? So when we try and analyze all of these techniques, if any of them are partial, it's, it's hard to do. And I, I think it's really important to have networking technology that's simple to operate and simple to architect for. The more, <laughs> I didn't say we were there, Ross. <laughs> Yvonne's over there like, what? I've never heard of this before. <laughs> Really, give me a little credit. Simple's awesome. Simple is the way to go. Simple lets my phone not ring at night. <laughs> exactly. So my thought was, if you have a solution which is guaranteed to give you 100% coverage, then it stops being a constraint on how you design the architecture. And that seemed to me to be just an incredibly useful goal. Unfortunately, Navia didn't really prove very practical. And then, of course, it's great to have an alternate, but there's this whole microloop problem. So, I know, Russ, do you think folks would understand all the details on the microloops? I know we touched on it briefly. Yeah, probably not. Probably we need to at least explain what a microloop is because I don't okay. know if people are going to understand it. Okay, so let me go through it very in my version of very simply. So <laughs> I got you, didn't I? Simple is good, remember. No. <laughs> it is indeed. So basically, let's say you have two routers, A and B. And in order to get, you know, let, let, let's say um, Yvonne and I are two routers, we're next to each other, and we're trying to reach Russ. So. Route. What? I will. No. <laughs> Okay. Let's say that normally to get to Russ, I go directly and Yvonne goes through me to get to Russ, though it might be the other way around, whatever. Maybe I should have had Yvonne be the destination. Anyway, point is, in order to get to Russ, Yvonne goes through me to get to Russ, except then my connection to Russ goes down. And when my connection to Russ goes down, maybe I'm just a little faster at computing, or maybe I just am a little closer to Russ, so I hear about it sooner. And so I compute and I install a new route. Now, I discover that my new route to get to Russ is going to Yvonne. 
Uh, except the, this problem, she still thinks she needs to send any packets to us to me. And so we loop until eventually she recomputes and figures out, oh, actually, I know Russ's email myself. What's the big deal? So she just ships the packets to Russ. And then at that point, my traffic can get through because I'll send it to her and she'll send it to Russ. So that's a micro loop. The thing you need to notice is the failure point doesn't have to be the link between myself and Russ. It could be anywhere in the network. So when you talk about micro loops, you could talk about local micro loops and you can talk about remote, lo- remote micro loops. Now, now these micro loops could last 15, 20 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds. It depends on how fast your network converges. And that doesn't sound like much until you start thinking in a provider network, I could be driving 100 gig of traffic or 40 gig of traffic over this link. And all of a sudden, boom, I have a Hadoop job that's being transferred from one point to another and it's pushing 40 gig of traffic and you got 40 gig looping over a 40 gig link. This is not happy. It is (laughs) very unhappy. (laughs) So... And there's some things you can do, right? But the key point is this can happen anywhere in the network. So there's a few things you can do. One thing you can do is you can essentially know what the the compute time is and sort of try and do essentially time synchronization. Everyone recomputes, but nobody installs and turns it on until you've swapped over. But... And the point of local repair, so where the failures actually happen, we call those the point of local repair. Um, they stay with their backup path and every, or alternately, um, instead of everyone staying on the old path and sending stuff, they can start tunneling traffic. They tunnel traffic to the point of local repair, then wait a little while. And then once everyone's tunneling traffic and therefore not using the old topology, then they can install the new topology and not cause loops. So there's lots of ways of doing this. It's just that none of them are actually pleasant. It's not very practical to try to get everybody um, converged on time that closely. At least it certainly wasn't back then. I mean, there's TikTok and stuff now and people are trying to fix this, but nonetheless, it's a very hard problem to solve. It's much harder than it seems. Yes, which is really annoying, but we do have a few pieces that do help. So one thing that's come out of this is there's a draft, actually we did as part of the MRT stuff, maximally redundant tree, which I know we're going to get to because it's fun algorithms and it solves this problem dead. I mean, not the <laughs> micro loop problem, but the fast react problem. Yeah. Um, but there are some aspects of There's a reason it's not out there today. And I'm happy to talk about that as well. Um, but there's a couple things that we've got. One is we do at least have IGP mechanisms now defined to flood around sort of a worst case convergence time for your network so that everyone can at least know how long it takes to compute and install a FIB in general, based upon how much information they have, the size of the network, the speed of the, the uh, route, the REs, and so on. So that's one piece that we have. And in BGP, they just set that timer to infinite. Oh, who cares about BGP? <laughs> it's got indirection. So if you want to go there, let's it back never up. never converges. <laughs> no, no, well, yes, but that's not relevant because it's always using one or the other of the IGP next hops. Right. So when we talk about these routes, and actually, it's a really good point, Russ. You usually make them. Um, (laughs) Is it? She's very precise. Yes. (laughs) I try. It comes from doing technology. You know, you have to be precise on these things. But one of the pieces is when we talk about computing the alternates, the thing to remember is all of your BGP routes or 
attach and figure out and follow. The, they have an IGP next top, right? So right. one of the things that you need to do in order to make fast figure out work is not just in the control plane doing all this computation and such, and it's not just being able to pass down the backup. It's being able to do the swap over, and then you need to have the indirection so that if you have tens of thousands of PGP routes, which are using the same IGP next top. Yes, I know the number's larger. I'm not no, exaggerating. No, it's Yeah, no, it, this, <laughs> this, this is an interaction surfaces problem, right? You have a complex system sitting on top of a complex system, and you have these two systems interacting, and now you've got to figure out what that interaction surface looks like and how one reacts when the other does X, whatever right. X is going to be. Right. So let's say you have thousands of BGP, tens of thousands of BGP routes. They're using the same IGP next hop. And now that IGP next hop needs to fail over to its backup. Your hardware needs to have indirection built in so that you have to go and rewrite just the IGP next hops state and have all of the BGP stuff follow it for free because otherwise there's no way you're going to converge in 50 milliseconds because you'd have to go and touch tens of thousands of routes in right. order to do that change Which, and you have to have you know time to notice a failure and so on. Right, which is why when you build like something like a Cisco Express forwarding tree or an LFIB or something like this, you have to have trees that point to data structures that give you the next top. So you can go change the next top data structures rather than changing the tree itself. And this is where problems, you run into problems with caching algorithms. Honestly, a lot of people don't understand this stuff. That If you're caching things like next top information, you have no choice but to clear the entire stinking cache which blows up your convergence very badly. So this is one of those places where people say, well, why don't you like cached forwarding planes? Uh, fast reroute. That's one reason. Yeah, it doesn't work. Well, but you could cache and then have it point to what you're caching is the indirection. Yes, and then the indirection could have the fast route. So right. you could do things... Like yeah. one of the things we designed was having... If you could have an interface table so that... If you say, normally I go out this interface, now I'm going to go out that interface. And that also gives you some benefits. Right. Uh, I mean, but, but so we talk about this stuff as it's all up in the control plane and it's not. There's so many different pieces that you need to handle down below. I mean, one of the other parts is reversion. Your link goes down and now you comes back up and you haven't heard from anybody else. What do you do? Do you stay on the backup? Do you revert back? It's not as simple as with RSVBT fast react where the head end gets to make all the decisions and tells you whether or not to revert. Right. And so that, so that was one solution that was actually put out there was RSVP, uh, RSVP TE, right? Which is using MPLS, just basically building two tunnels and just switching from tunnel A to tunnel B. But then still you've got to somehow send um, some sort of signal back from the tail end that the link has failed. So well, or wherever the link failure is. Right. Well, there's two pieces. I mean, I did the TE fast reroute stuff. Also, that was actually the first thing I really did in the IETF was I came in and said, so there's these two different versions and I have to write something that's going to interoperate with both of them. So how about this? And George Swallow is like, that sounds great. Now we can merge the two. Let's go. <laughs> and so I end up working on that. Um, so the thing with RS3PT fast reroute is when the failure happens, you have a pre-computed backup available, either the tunnel or you know the, the, the bypass method, say, and you start shipping your traffic over, but you've got to 
also then start sending your control messages across it and so on. And then the head end learns about the failure in two ways. One is in the RSVP message back, it's going to have the local protection and use flag set at the right point. And then the second thing is it's going to have the link failure get reported quickly. And at the head end, if you've written your software right, when you get that failure, you know all of the LSPs that are impacted and can figure out what to do. Right. And you're muted again. Yes, I'm but that's okay. All right, so continue on. So we've gotten to the point where we've talked about not via as being a solution for this and micro and micro loops and what the problem is there and RSVPTE, which is actually prior to this work, right? That's actually before yes. all of stuff starts happening. And now, so what happened after that? So you're trying to find this solution that will solve 100% of this problem where the design doesn't have to be built around the solution of the network, right? Right. So. We thought it was not via, I stopped pushing on U-turn alternates, which, you know, and we ended up adopting, the working group ended up adopting ordered FIB because it also solved 100% of the problem. But both of those solutions ended up being really just too complicated to implement. So people went off and they did loop-free alternates. And it didn't give you 100% of the protection, but you know, it's better than none and you can do things about it. So and then I went off loop free alternate, right? Getting there. Getting, getting there. there. Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's that's coming. So <laughs> then <laughs> put me back on the timeline, would you? <laughs> well, I look at this by jobs, you know how it is. <laughs> so then there were a couple jobs, and then I went to Juniper and I got to Juniper and uh, Hannes Gredler came and he said, we've got to figure out how to do 100% protection. And I was like, I saw this problem. We tried not via. It didn't catch on. This is a hard problem. I don't think we can do 100% protection. I was like, now nah, we should get together and talk about it and figure out how to do this. Always dangerous when Hannes is involved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes it fun. I mean, we have to have people who think and say, we can do this stuff. We can totally do this. And of course, Hannes had implemented LFA at Juniper. Um, so about that time, uh, Juniper was having these innovation days where you could go off and work with some other people on a problem that you thought was interesting. So the first one I had done with Hannes trying to figure out 100% fast route, and we really just did not get anywhere. Well, so we were supposed to do it the second time, second day. And Hannes is a great guy, but I don't know. I think he got pulled into something and he didn't show up. And I was like, oh, crap. And so I decided to spend the time still trying to figure it out. And so I started looking at research. And I found this algorithm from Actually Redundant Trees, which is just, it's just a really pretty algorithm. You know how that goes. <laughs> right. now, this is, how does this that go? <laughs> I'm a little it's, confused here. About maxly redundant trees or how algorithms are elegant and beautiful? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. So, well, if your sense of beauty is not adequately tuned to appreciate clear, clever algorithms that compute in order and time, I just don't know how to help you. You're, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're going to get to the poem section where it takes days to write the poem. So, 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 so 
This is based on Cerbales, isn't it? Or Cerbales? Is that Cerbales? Yeah. Cerbales. Okay, so let me let me back up and explain. It's not actually based on Cerbales, but okay. Cerbales gives you some of the basic ideas that okay. might be helpful to understand it. I mean, it depends how much into the math you want to get. Like I said, I mean, algorithms are fun, and I did write. You know, we have the RFC that describes the algorithm in detail for anyone who's really excited. I mean, anyone other than me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Everybody listening to this is going to run out and find that <laughs> so they can read it because they're going to be excited about this algorithm. It's, hey, we don't have a lot of really good algorithms in routing. We tend to stick on the same ones. And, so, and for those who are excited, what, what's the RFC number? Does anybody know? We oh, I think it. it's 78, 11, or 12. I can find it for you in a second. I really wasn't trying to... Um, now we've lost Aaliyah's channel. Uh, that's okay. Go there. Somebody Sorry. will be curious. We can, we can put a link in it after the fact. A link yeah. to it after the fact. Okay, sure. So anyway, the thing about, so let's talk about Sorbal's algorithm and let's talk about this whole, how do you find different paths? So I'm sure that you're all familiar with, you know, the bread and butter of routing algorithms, which is Dijkstra's, right? The shortest path first, it's basically a modified breadth first search. And that's great, but turns out that you can't do, you can't find two diverse paths, or redundant paths, if you will, between point A and point B by just running uh, SPF computation, pruning the links and nodes that you used, and then running it again. Anyone who's curious about it can go up and look on Wikipedia, Serbal's algorithm, it's where I go to look it up again and again and again. And... <laughs> Well, to get the, remember the details. I mean, yes, I've got the white algorithm book from grad school like everybody else, but it's heavy and it's on the bookcase, you know? Anyway, so the point is with Serbal's algorithm, um, there's, so the point is you can't compute a primary and a backup path across a network um, in series. You have to compute the two of them at the same time. And that's what Serbal's algorithm does. In fact, Aaliyah, we discovered this as well when we were working with, there was a professor out of University of Nevada, which I don't think you were involved in this work, but maybe you were. We were doing the DFS trees, Mike Chand and uh, I were messing around with DFS trees with this professor and trying to find some way of using a numbered DFS you know, actually numbering the nodes sequentially and trying to find some way where you could alternately number or something like that to create two uh, discontiguous or maximally redundant trees on the same topology. It turns out to be pretty stinking difficult to actually do that, by the way. But it actually turns out that that's exactly the basic concept behind maximally redundant trees is basically finding the two different paths. So yeah. mm -hmm. the problem with the, the idea with fast reroute is, and with routing in general, is you're not trying to just serve, solve for one source des pair, destination pair. You're trying to solve from one source to all destinations of the network. How do you do this? So I was doing research, looking at papers and work that had been done, and I found Gabor and Yeti's dissertation, and it was really nice. Um, it was the max. <laughs> well, no, it is. I mean, he's a really nice guy, too, right? But the point is the dissertation was just amazingly excellent work. Um, and really, that was that's where the Max on trees came from. I mean, we had to do some... Well, there was obviously a fair amount of work to do in order to turn it into something we could really use for routing. Right. But the basic idea is... And I only realized this after I read it and thought about it, wrote it up and so on. Because what described to me is, well, first you do this and you figure out your loan point numbers. And I'm like, why do you do this? And it didn't make any sense to me at first. But if you go back to that white algorithms book that everyone who went to grad school has, I mean, in computer science has, um, 
there's, or online, right? There's, how do you figure out if a network is too connected? Or a graph is too connected. It's by finding the low point, which by the way, for people who don't know what a low point is, it's essentially, all right, let me think of how to explain this without a picture. Can you explain it without a picture, Leah? No. So basically, I can try. Okay. okay. So you so assume you're doing it, do a depth first search. As you do the depth first search, you associate a number with each of the nodes that you find in the order you find them. Right. Okay. So, start, so starting with me as the root, if I, if I build a tree for myself, I basically assign every node a unique number. That's exactly, exactly what I'm doing. So if I, the first person I find, I call one. If my second neighbor comes up next on my tree, I call him two. And so I, neighbor all my, my, I number all my neighbors first, and then I go to the next tier of neighbors, the two no, no. You're doing breadth first, not depth first. Right, depth first. I'm sorry. You actually go out one neighbor all the way to the edge of the network. You number those guys, and then you go out the next neighbor all the way to the edge of the network and effectively loop through that way. That's right. Depth, depth first. Right. So a low point, is, assume that you've done that and assigned a number to everybody, which is the depth first number. Essentially, the low point is the lowest number of all of your neighbors. Um, so if you have a node, your low point is the lowest number of all of your neighbors. And depending on how they were discovered, that could be one. And the reason this works, right, is you have your depth, your, your, your depth for search number gives you the path by crawling up how it was explored down. That's right. one path. As long as you're going up an increasing number, you're going towards the destination. As long as you're going down a decreasing number, you're going towards the source of the tree or the root of the tree. Right. Exactly. And so, but then if you figure out what your low point is and you follow your low point neighbor, that's getting you closer to the root of the tree, but it's not using the same path as the depth first search explored. And then right. when you go to its low point neighbor, again, you're getting closer to the tree, but you're not getting to the, you're not using the same path. And so it turns out that if you follow your depth first search parent um, back up towards the root, that's one path. And if you follow your low point parent, i.e. where you derived your low point value from up the other tree, that gives you a separate path. Sorry, I know there's not enough space for me to do my hand motions, but that's life. <laughs> <laughs> Yvonne looks a little confused. Are you okay, Yvonne? Did you get that? Uh, you know, I'll need to find a picture, but keep going. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I can explain it to you, but it may take a little time. Right. Actually, right there with you, Vaughn, I think I need a piece of paper in front of me to really fully understand it. Yeah. yeah. It, it, so. That's what I said before. It's hard to explain this without a picture. Yes. Luckily, if you go to, which, I mean, if you're really interested, I'm not trying to push it, but if you're really interested and you look at uh, RFC 7811, it has all the pictures you want. Oh, cool. Okay. And, and there are pictures in the new book too, by the way, Yvonne. Are there? Awesome. Uh, yeah, in the Sorbala's explanation. Okay. So, sorry, go ahead. Cool. All right. So anyway, so I found this really cool paper and I started working and I reached out to Gabor and I said, how can we do it? Now, the problem with this, so anyway, the, prob the cool thing that he had figured out beyond the low point pieces um, was how to figure out sort of blocks of the networks, not all of the network, not all graphs or network architectures are too connected 
right? Right. You have two so, points where there's only one connection between the, between the components or between the modules. Exactly. And that's where the maximally redundant comes in. So we figured out how to take this building redundant trees in a graph that's too connected and turn it into maximally redundant. And then the other piece that he had, which is really cool, is turning it into a local computation for how to do it, uh, where you didn't compute the whole trees, but you just compute your next hops for what we end up calling the blue and red MRTs, and that, and it was still order n. So you're going to all the destinations of the network, you're just computing your, ne your next hops, and it's incredibly tractable computation. The problem we went to try and apply it to fast reroute is he didn't have computed how to tell which of these two trees the was right because one if you have two diverse trees right one of them is going to be going along ha might have a next top that's the same as your shortest path and the other one might does not but you've got to pre-compute this and if you don't pre-compute it then it turns out you have to do pretty nasty things in the forwarding plane and so we started trying to spec that out and it was not good so I was like, Gabber, you got to solve this. So he did. I mean, that was beautifully. It's like I fed him. I mean, obviously, some of it I coughed up too. But basically, I fed him an address. We need to solve this. There's just one little piece we've got to figure out. Or similarly for um, how to handle the border routers, how to handle um, when you have an island that support it, all of that. So anyway, so that's MRT. And obviously, I'm very enthusiastic about it because, hey, I spent several years of my life figuring it out. <laughs> which is what one does, right? And we, we did a prototype. So ultimately, how did you solve that problem for the listeners? How did you solve that problem? So you have two trees and everybody <laughs> listening to this is going to have to read the RFC so they can figure out what that looks like because you need the pictures to understand the difference between a low point. But just assume that numbering the mm -hmm. nodes way while you're running depth first search does create low points and these low points do create a second path through the network then the shortest path first that's the basic concept that's going on here so once you do that you have to be able to send traffic along one of these two trees you actually end up with two trees through the network through the through all the paths which do not use the same links that's essentially what it comes down to and both of them are Theoretically, roughly, part of the problem you have to solve here is that if you do this with just SPF, with just Dijkstra, you end up with one tree that's, that's, that's a cost of five and you end up with the other tree that's a cost of 500. You know, it's kind of stupid because you've used all your shortest paths. The really brilliant thing about what MRT does is it actually gives you two paths that are pretty close in cost, ultimately. It, 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 it can. It depends on the way the network is designed, but it can come up with, with closer pairings. So, but now you have these two trees, which, which listeners are just going to have to go find them and read it to understand the graph, the picture that's being drawn there. How did you actually ultimately solve the problem of sending the traffic on each tree? Because that's an interesting problem in and of itself. So what it turns out is when you can, all of this graph stuff, figuring out your two paths and so on, what you end up with is you end up with an ordered graph where you can say node A is more, higher than the root, you know, node B, basically. Yeah. As, mm -hmm. And then um, to go on the blue path, you, uh, I forget actually whether it's increase or decrease, but anyway, let's say it's increased. On the, to get on the blue path, you have to go to nodes that are higher 
ordered higher than you to get to the root and the root right. is both high and low so it's right. the, it's the center of the circle right and mm -hmm. so to go on the blue path so i've got a very limited space to hand wave in so here let's say you're here and you can increase <laughs> to get to the root or you're here and you can decrease to get to the root and that gives you your two different paths well if you're trying to figure out i want to avoid this node um, then if that node is ordered higher than you yeah, are. Lower, right. Exactly, but, and vice versa. But how did you actually cause the packet forwarding to happen that way? Because down in the FIB, I only have one path. So, Right. So what we ended up doing was we, I mean, we did what everyone has been doing for the last 20 years, right? We said, gee, well, if we just had an MPLS label, then it would all... <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? No, it's, no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, we used to joke about MPLS being mostly pointless label switching, but it's turned out to be really terrific for lots of problems. <laughs> so, I mean, there are other things one could do, right? You could do an IPv6 option. Oh, except even though IPv6 is increasingly deployed everywhere, we still don't necessarily deal in the fast path with options. That didn't seem like a but, good option. Yeah, you, you can't really do much with fast path and options in IPv6 regardless, right? Yeah, which sucks. And unfortunately, nobody left me a flag in the IPv4 header. Can you believe it? I was so disappointed. <laughs> but <laughs> if you want, <laughs> it was so mean. Well, we didn't know we needed it back then, right? So, but you can, all, but you can always use the QoS bits. Everybody else does. <laughs> So one of the things I'd done when I was at Avicii was the QoS subsystem. So I felt it would be morally wrong to take any of the QoS bits. <laughs> I, I understood that they have value and importance and are in fact really used. But anyway, so what we ended up doing is we ended up doing labels. And so you allocate one blue label for the MRT the blue MRT FIB, in fact, and one red one. So for every uh, forwarding equivalence class that you have, you end up with three labels. One is for your green shortest path because it's LDP, and one's a red MRT one and one's a blue MRT one, and off you go. Obviously, there's some complexity in some of the details, uh, particularly at border routers because... <sighs> Well, yeah, because what, when, if you receive the label, you need to know which area it came from and is going to and which right. area it got the fast route in. But this is all into the MRT details, and I think that's probably enough technology to give you the basic sense. <laughs> and it's so much easier to see, solve with segment routing. No, no, no. It actually is. Well, <laughs> yes and no. Anyway, the MRTs and a controller and ship the label stacks, but never mind. Oh, sure. You could totally do that. But I mean, some of this comes down to how much do you want to have and be able to have serious control of your network yeah. versus how much do you want to be able to let it go? So yeah. at the same time I was working on MRT, remote LFA was coming in. So if you remember when I talked about PQ space and directed forwarding and so on, well, this was Stuart Bryant and Mike Shan's idea. And that's what remote LFA is. They were trying to solve, figure out how to solve the 100% problem. And what ended up happening is it came back and looked at this 10 years later and said, oh, actually, you know, if we just do directed forwarding for one hop with the remote LFA, you're all set.
So you put one label on, you can get there and you can get to most of the places and, and you're good. And that gives you a reasonable, you know, in the high 90s kind of percentage of coverage. Uh, it does have non-trivial computation, but it turns out that Moore's law works on routers eventually too, at least for even for the route engines, and therefore the amount of computation has become less problematic and painful. Right. Um, and then you touched on TILFA and so on. And again, the idea there is you can put a label stack so you can direct your packets and you only have, normally you can follow the shortest path and then you just have to do a direction for where to go. Now, of course, you could do that on top of almost any computation algorithm, right? Um, in order to do the direction. So you could do it on yeah. top of MOT, you could do it on top of RSVPT type computations or serballs. Right. Yeah, yeah, so cool. All right. Well, cool. Well, we're at 49 minutes of on. So I guess we should wrap up, I guess. Although sad. it's going to be sad to, 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 we'll have to get Aaliyah back on. What else can we talk about, Aaliyah? Well, I'm working on Rift, but you know that. Uh, we could talk about. We could do the history of Rift. There's not very much history yet. It's only a year and a half old, right? But, you know, data centers are where a huge amount of networking is. And that's something which, um, I guess I could say now I worked on over at Google too, right? And so that's, you know, it's the similar problems, the closet networks have been around for a long time. There's a lot of different ideas on how to solve it. Um, yeah. we, can, we can come up with something else. It's always nice to chat. Come up with those stuff. It's cool. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks, Aaliyah, for coming on. And Yvonne, any questions? Uh, where can we find Aaliyah online if we want to, oh, there you know? We go. Where can we find oh, you? so professionally, you I do blog. I do blog. I do. I'm working on it. I'm getting there. Look, I do blog sometimes on LinkedIn, some, some blogs on IETF, a little bit on Juniper. Um, I have my Twitter, you know, AaliyahAtlas.com. What's up with that? I haven't felt the need to go commercial yet. <laughs> do you think I should do com instead of at org? I mean, then at least it would be giving to the IETF too, right? <laughs> So we can find you on the ITF blog sometimes. Where else? LinkedIn, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. Twitter. Okay, cool. What's your Twitter handle? Um, Aaliyah Atlas. I'm very unoriginal. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that at all. <laughs> well, it does help. I mean, let, let's be blunt. It turns out there are no other Aaliyah Atlases. And so if you Google, it's really easy to find me. It's the advantage of a unique name. Uh, as an Yvonne, I'm with you there. <laughs> exactly. So my Twitter is Aaliyah underscore Atlas capitaled. Oh, cool. Excellent. All right. And Yvonne, we can find you um, on that, right? Yeah. Esharp.net and Sharp Network is the Twitter handle. And Network Collective. Oh, absolutely. I am all about Network Collective. For this week. <laughs> just have to give him on a hard more time. than this week i think so donald where can we find you other than playing that guitar sitting in the background i'm waiting for you to pick, pick that guitar do you want me to pull it up <laughs> world of um, warcraft is that uh no that's a picture of my uh, wife oh but, uh, cool cool uh, we're gonna we're gonna have to have a network collective where where donald just plays the guitar i'm not sure we really want that so <laughs> Short, shortest path. Quote. Yeah, uh, you can find me at me not you sharp on Twitter. Okay. And I'm Russ White. You can find me at Rule Eleven and Network Collective, and who knows wherever else. 
So that's cool. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Network Collective History of Networking. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks when we do another one. I don't know what we have lined up, Net, but I'm sure it'll be exciting and fun. 